Well, sure, they can keep the lights on, but what about the air conditioners? Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, and he is Jeremy Wallace. I'm at quorumreport.com, and he's at houstonchronicle.com. Jeremy, how are you? Uh, after this last week, you know, I, I can't believe we're all still standing, right? You know, what a long weekend and week this has been. I was thinking about how polling has become just so criticized for being unreliable, right? For a variety of reasons. Um, you know, the shift from people not using landlines anymore to using cell phones, the opt-in internet polls, all of that sort of stuff. One thing about it I think might be more basic than all that is that our news cycles, and look, if you're trying to find out what likely voters think about things, those would be people who are civically minded. They pay attention to news coverage, et cetera, right? And if you have news cycles that are so intense and so much is happening all the time and everything feels like a crisis, then it would be easy for you to forget that if you paid attention all this week, it'd be easy for you to just not even remember that we kind of had a crisis, a mini crisis with our electricity grid last Friday, right after we did the show, right? So many things happened in between then and now. So if you polled people and said, hey, what are the top four things you're worried about in Texas? The grid might not register. It might. I was privy to some private polling, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago that indicated that the grid had sort of, you know, faded as a concern for Texans because we got through the winter. It was basically mild and and people just aren't worried about it as, you know, as much anymore. I wonder if the last news cycle that we had this past week, if you did that poll again, where that number would be, would, you know, would people be more concerned about the grid? I can tell you that people don't seem that concerned about voting. I went and voted today. You can see my sticker. I voted early. Almost nobody at my polling location. What are we at now, Jeremy? About 3% turnout, something like that? Boy, yeah, that, that you know, that's great compared to past runoffs. <laughs> we, we've had runoffs where we've barely passed 1%, so uh, right. I'll take 3% anytime. Well, the big challenge for candidates who are in runoffs, the, the main thing they have to do is just remind people when the election is is it's basically here's the election date and vote for me that's what you usually see on the mail pieces uh you see that uh, in the text messages that they're sending to uh to voters and all of that of course it's the last week of this election it'll mercifully be over on tuesday uh but uh this is the time when you start to see lots of nasty attacks it's funny how it's, it's like basically tuesday and wednesday of this week that's when I started getting more, you know, unmarked Manila envelopes at the at the quorum report, uh, you know, left on the doorstep. Uh, people don't want to, you know, don't want to be attached to information. But here's some information about this candidate, that sort of thing. Uh, but let me start with the electricity grid, because, and I had one person. I, you know, we have some listeners who are sort of conspiracy theory minded <laughs> in, in politics. It's, a, it's an old axiom that you should never attribute to coincidence that, that can e be easily attributed to a conspiracy. But the state of Texas did not let people know that there was a problem with the electricity grid until I think it was about 502 Yep. On Friday afternoon, heading into the weekend, I happened to spend some of the weekend uh, last Friday in San Antonio, and I was looking around at people at restaurants and bars, and people are just having a good time, Jeremy, and I would be willing to bet the vast majority of them had no idea that at that moment the grid in Texas was under a lot of stress. We had six power plants go offline. Why? Because it was hot, because, the, because they got kicked off because of the heat. And it wasn't even halfway through the month of May. So what's going to happen in July and August? People are worried about this. Now, Beto O'Rourke's social media team went right to work reminding all of us what Governor Abbott has said about the electricity grid in the past. Everything that needed to be done was done to fix the power grid in Texas. The Texas electric grid is the most reliable and resilient that it's ever been can guarantee the lights will stay on. Six power plants unexpectedly went down yesterday. That resulted in the loss of 2,900 megawatts of electricity, enough to power over half a million homes. They say their resources are maxed out. I could start to see those rolling blackouts. 
Now, there was a news conference held by the uh, Public Utility Commission and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas, the PUC, and ERCOT about all this. And I'm not sure if they would have had um, as robust a press conference if all that had not happened on Friday. They were trying to say that this is our normal seasonal report, although, of course, the topic was quickly about what had unfolded. On Friday and through the weekend, when Texans were asked to change their electricity use, right? And there was a lot of sort of, I thought, just kind of arguments over semantics, Jeremy. The, the, the folks from the PUC and NERCOT were saying, well, it's not really a, quote, alert or an emergency. We're just asking people to conserve. And if, in my estimation, if you're asking people to conserve electricity... That means you must have some big problem, right? You wouldn't do it otherwise. So uh, Christian Flores at uh, CBS Austin asked the chairman, uh, Peter Lake, the chairman of the PUC, about all this and said, look, can you really guarantee that you're going to be able to keep the lights on this summer? How can you ensure the power will stay on this summer when we've already seen you know, power plants trip offline due to heat, especially this weekend, and maintenance windows have shortened as a result of you canceling maintenance because of this recent heat. When we do encounter challenges like we saw last weekend, the multiple reforms are complementary and build off of each other to create even greater reliability. And that's how we know we can keep the lights on this summer. Now, Jeremy, you monitored some, uh, monitored some of the uh, news conference Governor Abbott had as well uh, on electricity and other issues. Uh, and I think that uh, the governor had something to say about our electricity generation in this state and adding more generation and tried to give people some assurance that things are going to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. You could see that everything kind of sprung into action. Abbott knows how important this issue is, right? He knows how much his reelection could become a lot harder if, you know, the grid doesn't stay on. You know, going back to what you were saying, it's like, you know, his meet, you know, back on Friday before that, you know, alert went out, you know, for people to raise their thermostats to 78 mm-hmm. degrees, right. <laughs> which, you know, come on, let's have this Imagine how many people really moved their thermostats up to degrees. This is Texas. People <laughs> like their air conditioning. This exactly. is a place in the in the. Let's just back up for a second. In the course of history, the only reason that a city like Houston would become the size that is it, that it is is because we have air conditioning. Absolutely. Otherwise, people couldn't even people couldn't even live there otherwise. Yeah, well, well, and going back to people's concern, it's like, so Abbott was meeting with the PUC and the ERCOT people at 2.47 on Friday. We know that because he tweeted out a picture of him meeting with them. So they, there was clearly something cooking early in the day, uh, and they waited till 5 o'clock to put that thing out. So I can see where mm-hmm. people are like, hey, you know, why do you wait till 5? Clearly, right. you were meeting with the governor probably about something serious related to six power plants tripping offline. You know, the at that press conference you heard, you know, I was at that press conference. They they mm-hmm. clarified that, you know, uh, that by the time they, uh, they lost the last uh, power plant, that's when they had to, you know, spring into action. So they weren't down the full six when they were meeting with Governor Abbott, according to what they were telling us at that press conference. But you can see it's just like uh, – you know, Abbott then had to be on, you know, one, showing us that he was, like, on duty, paying attention, but then you heard him in uh, North, uh, actually, Richland Hills, you know, saying that, you know, look, we put more, we have more megawatts out there than ever before. We have more happening right now. We have the power to maintain the grid and keep us, you know, powered through the summer. And so it was another reassurance that things are going to be okay. Um, but it's one of those things where it's like, if you have to tell us everything's going to be okay, mm-hmm. then why aren't we feeling okay? <laughs> well, if you, if you have to keep saying it, uh, you know, there's a reason for that, right? I mean, the, yeah, when, the, the when somebody tells you everybody needs to remain calm, it's not usually after a period of calm. <laughs> you know, right. people are panicking for a reason. In this case, the panic is: wait a minute, if if we're having trouble now. When we go through one of those stretches of 100 degrees for like 40 days in a row, uh, like we've had two years ago, it's Mm -hmm. like last year we had a pretty good summer, you know, like it gave us a little bit of a break through a lot of Texas. This time around, it looks like the forecast, uh, the long range forecast planning suggests it's going to be terrible on top of having a ridiculously bad hurricane season. So you have that combination kind of happening and there's going to be a lot of electricity needed to keep the state running. 
Yeah, we have about 30, I would say probably 31 million people who live in Texas. There was just a report this week that the census estimates that they undercounted the state by at least about a half million people, right? So the official number is something like 29 million people. You need electricity for every one of them. And that doesn't even start to address all the industrial use of electricity in Texas. And if you think about this, the way a friend of mine put it the other day, he said, look, because we have a thousand people moving here each and every day. And that was even true during the height of pandemic restrictions. Remember, um, because you have so many new people every day, each 24 hour period, you have all kinds of records set today. There are probably a record number of toilets that have been flushed in Texas because there are more people here, right? You have a record number of people turning on the lights every day, a record number of kids in schools, every day because people keep moving here and our electricity generation has not kept up with that. Now, the governor's office was not happy about uh, a column I wrote at quorumreport.com on Saturday about all this. I was thinking about the history of who had said what and who had pushed what in the legislature. And the headline was simply, Dan Patrick was right. And what I meant was that it was the Senate's presiding officer who was the one pushing the issue of more electricity generation. Now, whether I agree with his you know, specific policy prescription, no, not really. He and some other Republicans have tried to get away from renewable energy when I would argue that we need a robust fuel mix, all different types of energy. And I know that a lot of other folks who agree with that, there's a big debate about it. Um, but lest anybody think that I'm suddenly the president of Dan Patrick's fan club, <laughs> I'm, let me assure you I'm not. Um, do you remember... In February of 2021, right after the storm, the big winter storm, Patrick was on ABC News on uh, Good Morning America. It was actually GMA3. And he was asked by journalist uh, T.J. Holmes about why the state didn't do more to prevent the failure that we saw in the big winter storm when there were clear warning signs in the previous decade. We had had storms that were not as bad as the one that happened last year, but we had had some things happen that gave us a clear indication that there are problems with the electricity grid. Well, you talk about what the hell happened, but you could argue you've been warned about what the hell was going to happen for the past 10 years. When you had another severe storm in 2011, federal regulators came in and said everything you just mentioned should have been done 10 years ago. So why wasn't it? As you start an investigation now, which is important, but wasn't this something that was foreseeable and you were clearly warned about? Yeah, well, TJ, we were warned about it after we had a, a, a tough year in 2011 in the winter. And I was not lieutenant governor at that time, but I was in the Senate. And we did pass on recommendations to the PUC and to ERCOT uh, to make these recommendations. And to be very candid with you, every year we were told they were doing the work. Uh, we didn't have any problems in 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, or 20. Um, so as far as we knew what they told us, and since we didn't have any failures, uh, we believe they were doing what was recommended. Now, because all of this is a game to some people, you know that Patrick has mocked California for having rolling blackouts. Of course, it seems like he hasn't done that as much lately after we had our big problem last year. But Holmes also asked him about that. And sir, I have to ask because you did mention California and you were quick to mention California last summer in a tweet and saying that this is what happened when Democrats are in charge of your policy. You blame them for those blackouts, for those rolling blackouts. Do you blame Republicans now? Uh, You said you were part of the Senate back then. Well, you say you don't. But my question there is the Republicans have had a trifecta there in Texas for the past 20 years, the governor, the state house and the state Senate. This has been a problem for a long time. Nothing has been done about it. Do you not apply the same responsibility to Republicans that you did to Democrats quickly? Well, well, TJ, TJ, it hasn't been a problem for a long time. It became a problem this week. Uh, We believe that, you know, we had not had a problem except for some rolling. um, Sir, in 2011, you were warned by federal regulators. Let me finish. I I want to, but but I have to stop you. That was incorrect to say that this was only became a problem this week is not correct, sir. TJ, I didn't come on your show to argue with you. Okay. Well, sir, I'm not going to let you tell my viewers something incorrect. That is not the case at all that this became a problem this week. In 2011, a bad storm happened. You were warned not to do this. 
Patrick there saying he was not going to be lectured by this ABC News anchor. Now, I would say a couple things about that. Some folks tried to compare the storm in 2011 to what happened a decade later as if they were the same uh, intensity of storm, and that's not true at all, right? The one that happened in 2011 was a lot smaller, but I've made this comparison before. I'll make it again because you know what? We add new listeners just by leaps and bounds every week here, so a lot of people haven't heard me say this. What we had in 2011 was kind of like when you go to have your car serviced and you're just there for the oil change and the mechanic comes back and says, actually, we just found this little thing and this little thing. And if you fix it now, it'll cost you about $100. But if you wait and you let this get out of control, it's going to cost you $5,000, right? That, that's kind of the same thing that happened. We had problems in 2011, smaller issues, structural issues, things that should have been shifted up and changed. And they weren't. They just weren't addressed really in any real way uh, at all. And then we have this big failure in 2021. So it's not as if there weren't warning signs, Jeremy. The other thing is that, look, Dan Patrick, he's very smart politically. I still maintain he has some of the best political antenna, if not the best, in the state. And the anger that you heard there as sort of channeled through the news anchor asking him questions. I mean, there are a lot of people who are watching that cheering on the news anchor because they're in Texas who are angry about this not being fixed at that time, right? Patrick has a populist sense. And of the big three, of the speaker, the governor, and lieutenant governor, I think Patrick became the most aggressive about trying to do things, you know, quote, for the little guy. Like, he, remember, he wanted to send $300 checks to people, you know, if they had damage at their homes. Actually, he was just going to send it out blanketly to everybody. Um, he also was talking about more electricity generation, et cetera. And what they ended up passing in the legislature was not those things. Um, but he also pushed for repricing of the energy market, which uh, he really melted down the Senate over that. And it's not worth really revisiting that whole issue at this point. He put a lot more of his political capital into that at that time. Uh, he later wrote uh, an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News. The headline, I think, just was, Texas needs more electricity, you know, full stop. And you just haven't heard that sense of urgency from Abbott and his administration as they talk about this, Jeremy. It's more like... No, no, everything's fine. And in a lot of ways, as you have pointed out, Patrick on this issue sounds more like Beto O'Rourke than any other prominent politician in the state. Yeah. And what's interesting is like it was when Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick sent out the press release on Friday uh, warning that uh, the state, uh, the weekend's energy conservation warning is another sign that we must have greater reliability. Like Mm -hmm. he put out this kind of you know, a pretty strong statement. That is what mm-hmm. triggered me to write a story for the Houston Chronicle, you know, seeing that there are others who are saying, look, we, you know, this is a warning sign, even though Abbott was like, no, everything's fine. Everything's right. fine. Like I met with these guys. Is this a normal, you know, summer, you know, you know, whatever, let's everybody move on. It's like Patrick kind of rang the bell, you know, certainly not in the same way that Beto did, but it's this, right. it, it, it still shows you this bipartisan concern that like, look, we can't have the electricity fail in Texas. It's like, it's not just for like, you know, jokingly side, you know, nobody wants to 78 degree weather in their, their own house. Right. Or apartment. That's miserable. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, and you brought up, it's it's what it does to the economy. You know, if all of a sudden, like, all that money we spent trying to get, you know, Teslas and, you know, all the money that's being spent out in, you know, Houston and all the different, you know, energy sector, if they don't have power, what mm-hmm. the heck does that do? Like, it right. has ripple effects throughout the economy, not just in Texas, but, you know, really the world. You know, so you sit there and go, you cannot have, you know, Chevron and Shell and all those guys, you know, have no electricity all of a sudden to get us more electricity. It's like, it's, it's just catastrophic if that happens. So you can see everybody knows this is super important. And yeah. Even though Abbott wasn't using the same language, the fact that he was having to say anything about it shows you mm-hmm. that. They're well aware of how important this is, too. They're just going to try to calmly talk about it. You know, (laughs) nothing to see here. The lights stayed on. Aren't we all happy? (laughs) Well, I I would say that uh, they sort of lucked out this last weekend. I I think in putting out uh, an energy alert like that in Texas, um, you can probably only get away with uh, releasing it at beer 30 on a Friday. You can do that once, maybe. Uh, but yeah. as we move forward, I think it really will test the durability of GOP leadership if you're asking people to not run their air conditioners in July and August in Texas. And the other thing I would say is that anytime Patrick and Abbott are maybe not necessarily in full disagreement, although I think on some of the things to do with electricity, they were in disagreement, but anytime they're not in alignment, 
I would trust Patrick to understand the politics of the moment better than Abbott. I think he just has better antenna that way. That doesn't mean I agree with his policy prescription, but I think you're right. There's a bipartisan concern about this, and that's coming from Beto just as much as it's coming from Patrick. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I well, and I think you bring up a good point. Dan Patrick does have a different kind of antenna for this stuff. You know, it's like he was like outside of the political infrastructure, you know, more recently than Abbott. Abbott's been in that world, you know, since the 90s. You know, he's been kind of in a different kind of a bubble. At least, you know, Patrick, you know, it's like he had, you know, much more time, you know, with regular human beings and understanding regular humans for, you know, a little yeah. longer stretch. No offense, you know, but, but it's like when you've been in politics for 30 years, it's like mm-hmm. it's harder to kind of remember what it's like to just be sitting in a bar with normal people. <laughs> yeah. Is this the end of the Bush dynasty. I'm asking this question because I do think, and you know I don't make predictions in political uh, races, but the betting line, I was looking at this, there's uh, the website Predict It, where people, you know, make bets on, (laughs) make bets on political races. This one, if if somehow you, if you put a dollar on on Bush and he actually won, I mean, you'd make a million bucks. I don't even, it's, it's, the odds are stacked against Commissioner Bush in the Attorney General's race. Senator John Cornyn, the state's – and I think – is this fair? He's the state's uh, elder GOP statesman, right? I mean he's, he's, he's the one. He's, he's the veteran uh, of all the people we're talking about in Republican leadership in Texas. He got a little bit outside of his comfort zone in the way he talked about this. He slammed Ken Paxton during his weekly call uh, with reporters. And, and Paxton, of course, has these ongoing legal issues and scandals. And Cornyn says that it is just straight-up embarrassing. I've – tried very hard not to get involved in, um, in primary politics, I will tell you that I remain very uh, disturbed by the fact that uh, the incumbent has had an uh, indictment hanging over his head for now, I don't know what has it been, six years. Um, this is the chief law enforcement officer of the state of Texas, and it's a source of embarrassment uh, to me uh, that that has been unresolved. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, whistleblower claims are not uh, resolved and presumably under investigation. Uh, but obviously the voters will have access to that information. They'll make their own decision. And I, don't, I can't predict what the outcome will be. But I, uh, I, I do, uh, as a former attorney general myself, um, I'm embarrassed by... Uh, by by what uh, what uh, we're having to deal with. Jeremy, as somebody who's covered Cornyn for about two decades, I can tell you that is about as worked up as he gets. <laughs> that, that, <laughs> you know, that, 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 was, that was John Cornyn on fire, right? And he's saying that he's embarrassed by Paxton and the legal problems. That statement, of course, is being made at a time when it absolutely will not matter for the uh, for the result, right? I mean, a lot yeah. of people who are, who are you know, people who are going to participate in this have already voted. We'll see how many people vote uh, on election day. Uh, but as I often say, this cake is baked as far as these runoffs. So people have made their decisions by now. But I do think Cornyn knows what he's doing. He's not a Paxton fan. He's never been a Paxton fan. And in some ways, he is giving Democrats yet another argument for the fall, right? I mean, can you imagine? I could see the, the ad now. You know, the, the, you know, the FBI windbreakers are in the foreground. You've got Paxton. Is, either he has been arrested or some smart Democratic consultant puts together an ad that kind of suggests that he's been arrested or he's about to be arrested by the FBI. You see the, the senior Republican in the Senate from Texas, and you hear those words where he says, it's all embarrassing. This is terrible. The state shouldn't have to deal with this. It's another argument to make in the fall if, and it's a huge if, if Democrats can make it a close race, that's the kind of thing that matters a little bit. Oh, absolutely, and 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 like, uh, and, and just think about what you heard from John Cornyn. That's the first time, and maybe the last time, you'll hear him sound like Louis Gohmert. Because <laughs> remember, Louis Gohmert ran against Ken Paxton trying yes. to beat, but but with the same kind of concern, you know, about it's like, hey, you know, it's like this office, you know, shouldn't be, you know, in this kind of a you know cloud right now, and and they and for the same reason, like like you said, they know what November looks like you know it's like this is going to be a, if there's one statewide office that's most likely to flip 
this would win the race, right? You know, there's without a doubt, you know, Ken Paxson is not a favorite amongst Republicans all the time. You, you have this wide mm-hmm. swath of, you know, Gomertz to Cornyn who are like concerned about him as attorney general. Mm-hmm. And then you throw in if there's any sort of democratic energy between now and then big mm-hmm. if, but if there is as like, that's the race that, you know, put that one on your card as the most likely to flip in Texas beyond the governor's race, beyond any mm-hmm. other thing. That right. is the race that was more that it, that's when, you know, the Democrats have had a breakthrough if they take out that seat. Right. And, and it's because the incumbent does have so many vulnerabilities. And I do think he's just a lock to win this Tuesday. I mean, I don't have any question about that. Um, Paxton, uh, I don't think he even defends himself on these issues. He never really even talks about any of this stuff. Of course, you have Bush running around talking about how Paxton is an alleged adulterer. He's taken kickbacks from people. There are all the accusations from conservative Republican lawyers who worked for Paxton that he was taking bribes from people and all of that. Paxton just steers clear of all that, and he calls Bush a woke, liberal, and probably a BLM guy as well. Liberal Land Commissioner George P. Bush said teaching critical race theory in Texas schools was overly politicized and said he won't stop rogue school districts from indoctrinating our kids with their woke agenda. My opponent is busy suing dozens and dozens of school districts. Uh, on a variety of other issues. I'm a different type of lawyer. I want to avoid litigation at all costs. This Tuesday, protect Texas kids. Defeat liberal George P. Bush. Liberal George P. Bush has heard all of those attacks. He was asked about it by reporter Ryan Chandler at KAMC Television in Lubbock, Texas. One of the first calls that Attorney General Paxton made right after you forced him into a runoff uh, at the beginning of March was to a Lubbock radio station, and he told the people around uh, here in West Texas, he, he mentioned what he called the Bush dynasty and accused you of, quote, capitulating to the establishment. I'm, I'm interested to hear what your assessment of those comments are and, and how you'd like to respond. Well, that's pretty rich coming from a 22-year swamp creature who's spent an entire career around the Capitol. And it's not conservative to cheat on your wife. It's not conservative to abandon the Constitution. And it's not conservative to accept bribes from financial donors. So he's going to, after 22 years, attack me and distort my record. Is the reason, Jeremy, that none of that seems to really land with people, none of of it really seems to matter? Number one, Bush never really got all that aggressive about saying those things. He he may have had some advertising, and maybe he says these things in interviews. But most of what Bush has emphasized in this race is that he is, and this is replicated in races all over the country, that that he, Bush, is just as Trumpy, if you will— as Paxton, right? He's riding the ATV with his wraparound sunglasses down there on the border. He's going to keep us all safe from the quote-unquote illegal immigrants. He's talking about, uh, you know, supporting the values that are uh, portrayed and, and held by the supporters of President Trump. You saw this in Pennsylvania. You saw this in Ohio, where you have one candidate who is supported by Trump, has the stamp of approval, has the endorsement. And then you can't really say if one of the other candidates wins that it's some rejection of Trump because all the other candidates are trying to be the same thing, right? Like in Ohio, in Ohio, um, uh, Trump endorsed J.D. Vance and it helped him. It moved him forward and he won the race. But the other people were not making an argument. The other candidates were not making an argument that you shouldn't go with somebody who is in line with President Trump, right? They were all trying to be just as Trumpy. And Bush, for the most part, did that, right? Remember the koozie. Always, never forget the koozie. Remember the koozie with, uh, with Bush and Trump's picture on the back and the quote that said from Trump about Bush. It said, this is the Bush that got it right. This is the Bush that likes me. This is the guy. I like him. And that was before the endorsement was made in the race. Uh, but the fact is that there was never a choice given to people between these two guys as, to, as far as who would be, you know, maybe not anti-Trump, but something other than Trump. In the governor's race, same thing. Abbott was endorsed by Trump and Alan West, Don Huffines, they were all trying to be just as Trumpy. So, you know, whatever the percentage is, it's still in a lot of ways 100 percent a Republican Party beholden to Trump in so many of these races, including this one. And if you think about the arc of history with the Bushes, well, you've talked about this many times. Here you have Bush genuflecting to Trump. What would his grandfather think about that? George H.W. Bush, who one of his first jobs in politics was Harris County Republican Party chairman. 
in a part of the state in that and in that specific part of Houston, which is talked about nationally as the cradle, the beginnings of the establishment Republican Party in this country. You know, those Republicans who would be, uh, you know, pro-immigration, pro-business. You might still have some Republicans there now who are the ones who would attend a Planned Parenthood event and donate to the group, right? I mean, the people who uh, have a much broader view uh, of the world than folks who are, you know, the diehard GOP uh, primary voters right now. Um, and, And to have the Bush family come this far, to have it all in like this, is, I think, for, for, for people who have been, I've heard this from folks, for people who have been fans of the Bushes, it's very disappointing. Yeah, and as somebody who covered you know, Jeb Bush quite a bit when I was in Florida, I covered him as governor. I covered him before that first race, actually, where he ended up actually finally winning uh, against Buddy McKay. So, so there, there's one thing that like George P. never did, which is kind of almost look at how his dad pulled that off, right? How did Jeb Bush become the governor of Florida and, you know, you know, relatively successful in a state that had been democratic at that point? Well, a big reason is like he had played the long game in building up a network. You know, he was on first name basis with, you know, reporters and Republican club people. And he was always out in the state before he even kind of got there. So he built longer and stronger than I think George P. did. George P. had such a kind of a weird relationship with the media, which is almost none. Like he just didn't have an ability to communicate with the media in anywhere close to the way his dad was able to. And his dad was pretty conservative and he didn't like everything everybody reported. But I think, you know, George Peake would have been better served kind of taking a little, you know, some more notes from his dad. And how did you win in such a big state? Like, well, you gotta be out there. You gotta be networking this thing, you know, long before you gotta... You know, it's not like a couple of ads and on, you're on your way. Mm-hmm. It's like he needed to build like a much better case for a longer period. Like you said, it's like, where has all the fire been? It's like he needed to be talking about this a year ago. He needed to right. get it so in our head. Like he had to get in our head that, you know, Ken Paxton was bad for Texas. As right. like, and it feels like in the last couple of weeks, he's, you know, kind of really amped that up. But sure. last couple weeks isn't enough. Yeah, got to have it late. in our DNA. And I think, right. you know, I guess, you know, it, I think what's so sad about this from a Bush perspective is, is like George P. didn't implement so many things that of the things that made the Bushes successful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like it's going to be weird. He's going to kind of take the legacy. A lot of people are going to write about how this is the end of the Bush legacy. But it's by by doing it in a way that the Bushes didn't. <laughs> you know, it's like the different kind of networking and the different kind of politicking and campaigning. I just don't think he kind of lived up to what Never. we saw George W. Yeah. and Jeb and even, you know, George H.W. Bush. It's like the way they networked, the way they built from the ground up is just so different from what George yeah. P. just did here. George P. Bush, when he was running for land commissioner, to bolster your point, one of the things that his campaign would do is put him on the bus and say, the, you know, P. is on a bus tour of Texas, and he's going to Amarillo, and he's going to Abilene, and he's going to go to Dallas, he's going to go to all these different places. Um, and a reality of Texas is when you get on a bus, it means you're on the bus for hours and hours. It was set up to make it look like he was doing what you're talking about where he's going around to different people and talking to them. But what it really meant was complete full days of just being right, you know, on the bus, riding the bus where he wasn't talking to people because they, they always kept George P in a cocoon. I would also say this about commissioner Bush. He often liked to joke at some campaign events. You probably saw him say a version of this, that at least half of his job is telling people what the land commissioner even does, right? That people don't know about it. I would say he could have put more, energy and effort into actually doing the job of land commissioner because it's pretty important. For one, they administered the uh, permanent school fund, which is a big deal in Texas. Um, Number two, hurricane recovery along the Gulf Coast. How much controversy has there been about the way he handled that? And there's nothing partisan about, you know, fixing up people's homes after a hurricane, which, by the way, Hurricane Harvey was way back in 2017. I did the math on this real quick, Jeremy. You know, the, the percentage of people who live in the counties directly impacted by Harvey is probably something like around 27 to 30% of the GOP primary electorate 
lives in those counties, right? So people would be upset with him about that. And then there's one other thing, one huge thing in Texas that he oversees that has been just rife with controversy, the shrine to Texas, the Alamo. And we have heard so much argument about, you know, his plan to reimagine the Alamo. And look, I'll give him some grace on that one. Managing that's a disaster. It's the city of San Antonio in conjunction with the state, in conjunction with, you know, the volunteer groups and all that. And so that's a very difficult uh, form of politics. But I remember going to some campaign events with former land commissioner Jerry Patterson years ago, who's no liberal. (laughs) And he would go around giving these speeches and talk about the importance of the land office. And the first thing when he'd open it up for questions with Republican voters, the first thing they'd ask about would be, quote, what about protecting our monuments? And they meant the Alamo, right? And, and this was when the whole debate was going on about taking down statues around the country and a lot of conservatives really getting upset about that, you know, Confederate uh, you know, war heroes being uh, erased from history is the way they put it. Uh, this stuff, all those things that I'm uh, describing are things that he could have built a record on that he could be proud of and really run on instead of only doing what you're talking about with, you know, giving us all the negative stuff about, uh, you know, about Paxton. And then he could do both of those things at once yeah. for the last year, right? But instead, we didn't really get that at all. Well, and, and you hit on a really sensitive spot, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of people, if you talk to them in Rockport, uh, out in Houston, who are still upset with how things are being managed with Hurricane Harvey relief money and the money right. afterwards. And he's kind of to blame for it. You know, he took on this role, you know, with some gusto. Uh, and, like, he just wasn't in those places enough, I think. You know, it's like he could have – this whole conversation could be so different if – you know, again, I, I hate keep bringing up his dad on him. You know, it's like, but Jeb was in Charlotte County, Florida, every right. single weekend. It felt like during after Hurricane Charlie, it just you couldn't get away from him. He was always there. He became like almost a hero in these parts of Charlotte that were destroyed. He, we did not see George P. do that in Rockland. No. You know, like every, in, right. in Rockport, it's like yeah. people forget about how bad things were in Rockport. That's where the direct hit was. And that There's a lot of stuff that's devastated. still not rebuilt. That's yeah, just I gone. Will, I will never forget driving around those areas that I knew so well that I didn't know anymore because everything right. was gone. And those people have really struggled to put things back together. If George P. had been able to kind of put himself in there regularly been mm-hmm. that voice for those people. It's like, what a different conversation. If you had used that office, you know, like nobody there would not, you would never have to explain to anybody down there what the Jordan, what the land office does if right. he had been more upfront down there and really kind of putting himself on the front lines with those. But he just wasn't down there enough. It's like, Man, I don't know what to tell. It's it, like, he needs a time machine point. to go back and fix that. <laughs> you know, yeah, right. I don't know how well, else you can do it. Right. Well, I mean, you don't have to explain to people uh, what you're doing if you just do it and do yeah. it well. And, and you know, all those folks in, the, in all those counties, I mean, from from Harris County. And again, that's a bipartisan thing. That it's an, It should be a nonpartisan thing, a rebuilding yeah. after a storm. Totally the realities, nonpartisan. right, the, the, the political realities of a storm like that, of a, of a natural disaster. And believe me, I've covered every every one of them. There's always something to, you know, something that's trying to kill you in Texas, whether it's a hurricane or a wildfire or a rattlesnake or you name it, whatever. You, you got to understand the political ramifications come not in the days and weeks after, but in the months and years after. Like you said, when people are still feeling like they've not been made whole and the yeah. government and private business have not done what they need to help people out. So being a hurricane hero would have gone a long way here. Um, there was a, another thing you might have forgotten about. So many things going on this week. It's kind of a theme of the show is that you might have forgotten these things because they were more than five days ago or more than four days ago or more than three days ago because in the meantime, one thing happened after another. A big abortion protest uh, in Austin at the Capitol, and this was um, one of these bands off of our bodies protests, Jeremy, that have been replicated all over the country. It's happening everywhere. This was on the Capitol grounds downtown Austin. They're saying to shut it down if they don't have their abortion rights. Paige Alexandria with uh, Lilith Fund says that thousands of people, because of the laws that have been put into place in this state, are having to leave Texas to get health care that they need. Most of our clients have no choice but to go out of state. Each month, over a thousand Texans travel to 
procedure that could be performed locally to them. The folks that don't have the privilege of traveling out of state, many who are parents, young people, poor people, black people, disabled people, trans and non-binary people, they have no choice but to continue pregnancies they weren't ready for, didn't consent to, or aren't safe for them to continue. Brianna Brown is with a group called Organized Texas. It's not a coincidence that Texas has the highest rate of folks who are uninsured. 4.3 million, and 72% of those folks who are uninsured are black or brown. It is not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence that the map of former slave-holding states mirrors the map of states that did not expand their Medicaid. Now, a lot of people fired up and talking about this, Jeremy, of course, after the leak of the Supreme Court's uh, opinion, uh, the, the ruling that may well come down a little bit later this year. There is still time and still a chance through the process that it's not exactly what was originally reported, right, that, that uh, Roe versus Wade is going to be completely overturned. That could happen, right? Don't I'm not telling you that, that, that it's not going to happen, but the Supreme Court you know, still could go in the direction of a narrower ruling that only addresses you know, whether that Mississippi law specifically is you know, unconstitutional, get into uh, you know, viability and all that, um, or they could just go full steam ahead with the court uh, comprised as, as it is now. They could just say, no more Roe v. Wade. Um, I took a little heat on social media for saying uh, that the issue of trans rights doesn't necessarily need to be intertwined all the time with this abortion issue. Uh, some Democrats took issue and, and said, look, if you don't stand with trans rights and trans kids, then you're just not one of our allies. I think it's interesting that people are trying to build a political movement and ostensibly are trying to win campaigns in Texas and maybe don't understand that, number one, it's not an either or. I don't think that these folks should not talk about trans rights. But I heard this from a lot of Democrats and a lot of a lot of Democrats reached out to me privately, uh, Jeremy, to say that they thought that what the big issue here is for these rallies and for women at the moment is whether they have a right as women to get an abortion. Fundamentally, that that's the issue. And when they start to hear all of these messages at a rally like this or at other protests about LGBTQIA rights, they start to hear about how trans rights are reproductive rights. That was one of the quotes from one of the speakers there. Um, this is the way it was characterized to me. One Democrat said, look, if you have a movement based on women's rights to choose an abortion and you look at public polling and you look at the way elections have gone, there's broad support for that. Even in Texas, there's majority support for a woman's right to choose an abortion and to let her have that decision, right? And in fact, you get more like 80% are with you when it comes to these laws that have no exception for rape and incest. Like you said on the show last week, that's a really tough conversation to have, you know, in a political context, in a personal context. If you're framing it up as, as this, if you're framing it as you have to be just as fired up about trans rights, if you also want to advocate for women... Otherwise, you're not welcome here. Well, then you're going to run people away from your movement, right? In other words, you're shrinking your coalition by doing that instead of just welcoming as many people as possible who would agree with you that a woman has a right to choose. And it's a matter of emphasis. You know, I talk, we talked a lot about vouchers last week, school vouchers. And some folks say, well, you know, you really need to talk more about what's going on with trans kids in Texas. And I don't agree with what's happening with trans kids in Texas. You know, this idea that Governor Abbott has CPS looking into the homes of, you know, people with trans children is, in my estimation, is disgusting. And we've seen these stories. But that affects 0.00002% of children, and vouchers affects everyone, right? All children. And because it's, you're talking about defunding their schools. And it's not an either-or. I mean, these folks do realize that trans kids go to public public schools as well, right? So if you make the public schools worse for everybody, that would include those kids as well. There is this push on the left to have sort of almost compliance with people uh, on the trans issue and having to intertwine it with everything else when the vast majority of people have never even met a trans person. But everyone has met a woman who has had to make this decision 
in all likelihood. You know how many women who have had abortions are already mothers? I mean, it's, the percentage is high, right? This is, a, this is one of those things that's as personal as possible to as many people as possible. When the trans issue is important, it's important to a very small group of people. It's very hard to build a political coalition built on that. Yeah, definitely. There's like the energy right now uh, is clearly, you know, at the back of Democrats on the abortion issue. Right. It's like like you mentioned, the polls have consistently showed that, you know, there are it's hard to find many Texans who are in support of what we're about to see put into law, which is you know, there's no you can't have any abortions in the state of Texas, even in cases of rape and incest. Like there are very few Texans who agree with that you know, philosophy. And yet, you know, it's like if the Democrats start swaying, you know, swinging away from that message, it's like they have the winning message right now. It's like, mm-hmm. we will stop that. And it's like, yeah, you don't even have to go too much further. It's like you're winning the argument if you're just opposing that. You don't have to kind of, you know, like if they, but, you know, look, this is politics, right? We've seen this happen to both parties. They then start getting distracted by other stuff. They start trying to throw other things into the discussion and start muddying the water. And then Mm -hmm. it becomes, well, it's like, you know, you start taking the energy out of what's there. And I think mm-hmm. right now the energy, you know, like I was down at that rally on Saturday and it's like, yep. it was, a, it was impressive. Like mm-hmm. just how many people were there. And I kind of was thinking, I was watching the other coverage in other places. Thank God for smartphones. Right. You know, I'm literally watching, you know, the same thing happening in San Francisco and Washington and, you know, San Antonio. Yeah. And it's like, you just kind of starting to get the sense like, man, it's like, this is big right now. This is a big deal. And like, we're like potentially a week or two, away from the official ruling coming down and mm-hmm. so we're about to go you know as fast as this you know cycle is we're gonna like flip over <laughs> right back into it all again you know and maybe a couple weeks from now when the supreme court decision you know would likely be coming out it has happened again in the united states and it's almost just gotten to where people are numb to it jeremy you turn on your television and this is what you see this is an NBC News special report. Here's Jose diaz Bolard. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air with breaking news out of Buffalo, New York, where at least seven people have been shot and killed in a mass shooting at a Topps grocery store. Another person is reportedly in critical condition. Here is what else we know as of right now. Police and emergency responders are on the scene. Buffalo PD says the shooter is in custody. New York Governor Kathy Hochul said she is monitoring the situation and is asking people to avoid the area. Ten people shot dead there in Buffalo uh, at, uh, at a grocery store. Why would someone do that? The Justice Department has stated publicly that it is investigating the matter as a hate crime, racially motivated act of white supremacy and violent extremism. President Biden, they're speaking at a peace officer's memorial and more specific than just the uh, white nationalism and uh, and uh, racism uh, is this uh, idea that the gunman is reported to have embraced what's called replacement theory. Jeremy, the idea that Democrats are using people of color to replace white people in this country so that they can win elections, right? It would be either African-American people, uh, people who are coming in from Mexico or the Northern Triangle countries, the quote unquote illegal immigrants. And I saw that the Houston Chronicle had a story up about how Senator Ted Cruz was doubling down on that kind of language, even after this unfolded in Buffalo. And this became, you know, the the number one thing everybody was talking about. Yeah, it's like this continued conversation of this supposed invasion. You know, Ben Worman, our Washington bureau correspondent, you know, wrote about how, you know, Ted Cruz was back using that language in reference to the potential lifting Title 42, which, of course, we've just learned that it won't be lifted now. A judge has intervened you know, as yeah. we were taping this uh, to kind of stop that from happening. But, you know, just using that term invasion right now is just like, you know, clearly a lot of Republicans don't see any problem with it. But, you know, it's that term that is showing up in these manifestos from these like white nationalist you know shooters who are shooting people up in places like el paso and buffalo yeah Yeah. in el paso the shooter there at the walmart posted a manifesto online that used the phrase quote hispanic invasion 
And as we reported at the time, this was a guy who got in his car and drove from Allen, Texas, which is north of Dallas, all the way to El Paso County to hunt Mexicans, right? And this is the kind of language that some of our elected leadership in Texas uses on national broadcasts. Do you remember Lieutenant Governor Patrick telling Laura Ingram that they're basically, I'm paraphrasing now, but I'm going to let you hear exactly what he had to say. He was saying they're replacing us. The Democrats want these folks to come in illegally so that they can become Democratic voters. And Patrick said to Ingram that a revolution is underway. The revolution has begun, a silent revolution by the Democrat Party and Joe Biden to take over this country. Tomorrow is Constitution Day. And folks, if you haven't read it, you need to read Article 4, Section 4 very quickly. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union and shall protect each of them against invasion and domestic violence and guarantee a Republican form of government. We need every state, every red state, because the blue ones won't do it, to send and invoke Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution to tell the president that we are being invaded. Now, invasion, properly defined by most, says it's an unauthorized, uninvited, unwelcomed incursion in your territory or property. This is not authorized by the state of Texas. It's not welcomed by the state of Texas or any other Republican state that I know, and they're not invited. And so every red state should invoke this clause now because every red state is being impacted and the blue states apparently don't care. Laura, when I say a revolution has begun, they are allowing this year probably two million, that's who we apprehend, and maybe another million into this country. At least in 18 years, even if they all don't become citizens before then and can vote in 18 years, if every one of them has two or three children, you're talking about millions and millions and millions of new voters. And they will thank the Democrats and, and Biden for bringing them here. Who do you think they're going to vote for? So this is, this is trying to take over our country without firing a shot. And Patrick went on to say that, quote, the Democrat Party will own America and they know it. They have already begun the transition by pandering heavily to the Hispanic voting bloc in the first Democratic debate, close quote. Actually, that wasn't Patrick. That was from the manifesto with the guy in El Paso before he went to go shoot Mexicans. Can you tell me, Jeremy, see how I could confuse those? It, it was substantively, what's different between what the guy who went and gunned down a bunch of people in El Paso said versus what Patrick said on Fox News. There's really no difference, right? They're all talking about the same thing. The idea that these undocumented immigrants, illegals as they would call them, are coming into this country as part of some grand plan to try to take over the country. And as somebody who grew up in rural Texas, I can tell you I have heard people say a version of that my whole life. People who are just straight-up racist who hate Mexicans, don't want them here. The joke they would tell, and it, where I'm from, one of the jokes they would tell is, you know what, someday I'm just going to like uh, put a tortilla on top of my car and drive as far north as I can until somebody says, what's that, and then live there. That's the kind of rhetoric people would use, right? The kind of thing that they would think is hilarious. The kind of thing that they would think is funny. The same people who would hire undocumented immigrants to work on their farms, to mow their lawns, to babysit their kids, and all that sort of stuff. It is unbelievable to me that people like Patrick and people like Cruz would make the argument that they can't be responsible for what a deranged person does when they go to El Paso or when they go to Buffalo to hunt people of color. And what I would say to that is that the comments made by powerful people along those lines can add to the derangement of a person who then goes and does that stuff. Well, and, and let me give you a little insight into that area of Buffalo. It's like, so like I was up there recently and talking to folks there and, and Buffalo just like had, a, you know, for the first time in like 50 years has had an increase in population. They were losing people for so long, but a lot of that increase has been a diverse 
population that's been coming. You know, they've been getting a lot of asylum seekers from other nations, quite honestly. So very much like it, it, what we experienced in South Texas, right? You know, where you have a lot of like, you know, one, one of the guys I was speaking to there was a Somalian, you know, who his family had moved there. And he goes, when he was coming to the US, he had, USA, he had no idea where Buffalo was. And it's so darn cold, but he loved it there. And so so what happened to them? Yeah, you had this kid in like, you know, it's a man. It's an eighteen-year-old man. I, yeah, I shouldn't right. call him a kid. No, I get but it. Like, he's, he's, he's a young. Impre- ex- he, it's fair to say he's a young, impressionable person who yeah. can be influenced by. I mean, he, obviously, he didn't come up with this idea on his own. Exactly, and that's what I'm getting to. He's hearing that you know, you know, Buffalo and how that area is starting to grow because of the immigration, the population. It's very similar to what that kid in you know Allen, Texas, was hearing about El Paso. This guy drives from Binghamton to Buffalo, and you know that's you know it's not quite the same distance as Allen, but it's a good two to three hours in a car to kind of get there to shoot people in a neighborhood because they look differently it's like you know i have a hard time with this because you know what you know to think that somebody would wear all that tactical gear to go in line and shoot a bunch of grandmothers in line that are Mm. you know can't defend themselves right there right it's like how how messed up is that to think that like you know an 80 year old woman you know is like loses her life because you know this 18 year old kid hearing this stuff all the time on Fox and wherever else he's gotten. I don't know. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just so sad to think that like, how do you stop the racist mental illness thing that is happening? Cause it's like, there's a point where you just want, isn't racism a mental illness at some point? Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we like the fact that they almost caught this kid, like, you know, early they caught him. You know, like, they, there was clearly some issue there and yet not, it wasn't enough to be able to stop him from doing this. And it's like, I just had all these flashbacks, to you know, El Paso and just think mm-hmm. to think to lose your life because of your skin color, doing the most mundane things we all do, you know, standing yep. in a, you know, in a grocery store, you know, buying some produce or going back to school shopping in El Paso to think that you have to give your life up for that just because of your skin color. It's, yeah. I, I, I had a hard time with all of it. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's a, it's it's very well said. It's um, if racism is a mental illness, it's a contagious one. Yeah. Little children, little children don't know to hate other kids unless you tell them to do it. And I've seen people do that with their children. You know, uh, you let the kids play together, be just fine. They, they they would never think to hate them because they're different. Someone has to tell them to do that. Um, have you seen this fight? in houston that is pretty epic it's it's just getting more and more uh dramatic between kim og the district attorney in harris county and lena hidalgo the county judge now some of the county judges inner circle including her uh, chief of staff have been indicted in connection with this big contract what was it 11 million dollars for uh, outreach on covid uh, which of course there were some Similar contracts on COVID at the state level, and I haven't seen any indictments over that. Interesting. Um, but I'll, we'll come back to that. <laughs> this, fi- this fight has, of course, gotten very political. I, I saw where somebody was saying that uh, this is the nastiest political fight they've seen in Houston in a long time. And that's a high bar because guess what? Houston and Harris County politics is bare knuckle politics. You know, I grew up in it. I, you know, would, I, I cut my teeth on Houston politics. Fantastic. I feel like if you can cover politics in Houston, you can really cover it just about anywhere. They have the kind of machine politics that I think only maybe Chicago has like that that uh, that scale of, of how big it all is. Right. Um, Judge Hidalgo says that she expects to be targeted next in what she calls a political investigation by the D.A. Kim Og. Here is what uh, Hidalgo had to say about it. You have to think about the timing. It's no coincidence this is happening in the middle of my re-election campaign. That in and of itself should make very clear that it's politically motivated, that it's meant to destruct, to destroy, to harm my campaign, to harm, to distract me. That is, I think, enough evidence and is very clear as to what the motive is. The litigating this in the press You have to wonder, you know, what does it say? What does it say when a motion is given to a member of the press before it's given to the defendant? Well, 
that is notable. Um, and it's not like you've never had leaks from a DA's office before or from a grand jury. I mean, have you ever heard of anything like that happening in uh, in Texas, <laughs> Jeremy? In politics? That, no. <laughs> in, in politics, especially in, in – um, in Houston or in Travis County, where it would happen very often with the Public Integrity Unit, especially when uh, the former and the late uh, uh, prosecutor Ronnie Earl was there, uh, this was part of the statement uh, from Kim Og, the district attorney. She said, "Quote: We do not fight our differences in the streets or on social media, and I will not try this case in the court of public opinion." She said that Hidalgo's statements are quote, misstatements and could, quote, improperly influence citizens called to serve on a jury. Now, if you have the kind of microphone that Hidalgo does and you're under the microscope like she is, I think it'd be pretty smart politically to do what some people would call taint the jury pool, get the, get it out there that you don't think that any of this is legit, that you think that it's all political. Um, I was thinking a lot about this, Jeremy, and it's just one of those dynamics where you've had uh, Og and Hidalgo at odds over a number of issues, right? They just don't agree uh, about a lot of different things. Uh, but they're both Democrats, and in, in some ways, Houston has become so Democratic that in Harris County has become so democratic. And I know Republicans are fired up that they might have some shot at the county judge's office this year. We'll just watch because it's supposed to be a pretty good year for Republicans, although I don't know they can go that deep anymore in Houston. We'll, we'll, we'll stay tuned on that. But as far as the infighting between Hidalgo and uh, Og, it's sort of like Republicans statewide fight with each other, right? Because in, in Houston, it's gotten to where the Republicans almost seem like no threat in a lot of ways to the people who are in office. So at the state level, the Democrats don't seem like a threat to the Republicans and they fight viciously, right? We heard some of it earlier with Paxton and with Cornyn and all of that. And the other thing I was thinking about, just fascinating. I used to think that the most powerful Democrat in Texas, maybe 10 to 15 years ago, would be the mayor of Houston. And for a variety of reasons, including the fact that it's the biggest city and because the government is organized different differently in Houston. In, in Houston, they have a strong mayor form of government and just about every other city, I think there's maybe only one other one that doesn't have this. Every other city has the city manager form of government where there's always an argument between the mayor and the city manager, or sometimes they work well together, but the mayor is basically a figurehead, just another vote on city council. But in, in Houston, the mayor sets the agenda. They can tell their agencies what to do and they can tell their administration what to do and all of that. But when I made that assessment, that was before district attorney candidates started to win in these big counties all over the place. So in Harris County, Dallas County, you got Kim Og in Houston, John Crusoe in Dallas, you got Jose Garza in Travis County, and some of these other uh, big city DAs. I would make the uh, just assessment that now, and look, look at the way the Republicans are starting to go out in, in Austin, in state government, they're starting to go after the DAs in big cities around the state. Because I think those big city DAs are now the most powerful uh, Democrats in this state. And think about the power of the DA. Oh, yeah, look, you can argue about the different powers of government. But the DA is the one who can lock you up. The DA is the one who's law enforcement. And I don't think everyone fully grasps this. The district attorney is a state-level position. Right. It's not a, it's not local. It's elected locally, but it's a state level position. That's why when somebody is uh, charged with a felony, the case is the state of Texas versus whoever. And it's not Harris County versus whoever. Right. It's a state level position. The attorneys in Houston and elsewhere would say the district attorney wields the sword of the state. So if you're going to be feuding with somebody all the time, and I'm not saying that, the, you know, either side in this argument doesn't have good points, but if you're going to feud with somebody, the DA is probably the last one you want to have a feud with. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard to win that fight against the DA, you know, in a lot of levels. Uh, but, man, there's a lot at stake here for Lena Hildago. Sure. Right? You want to right. talk about somebody who has a potential to be a massive star in Texas politics. This is a, mm -hmm. you know, a young Latina who, if she can show that she ran a city, a major city the size of Houston or Harris County, uh, the, the, the county, obviously, if she, if she can show she ran that well, you know, it's like, 
the political universe for her is wide open. Like mm-hmm. she could be, you know, a great statewide candidate down the road. You think of a lot of the the names that we used to banty about, like who could be statewide challengers for Democrats, mm-hmm. and, and and there were Latinas in there, but they were typically older. Uh, but this is a new breath of like you know democratic politics potentially so like she, you know if she does well she's got a whole world ahead of her mm-hmm. but if she runs into problems here if, if this aug investigation or and you know, this clash with her goes on you can see there's a lot at stake here it was funny because you know yeah, a couple days earlier uh before hildago said that stuff she had had a fundraiser and it kind of track you know kind of cracked me up a little bit the slogan on it was don't mess with lena <laughs> and you can see like it kind of almost you know, previewed like this get tough approach that she's you know trying to kind of employ now uh to kind right. of push back and show she has a backbone and you know we're not going to rest we're going to fight this tooth and nail that kind of thing so yeah. uh it'll be interesting how this works out a lot at stake on this thing well and i think a lot at stake particularly for hidalgo for all the reasons you said and i would add to that that hidalgo has made part of her image and her message to voters that she's above reproach, that ethics is very important to her. And this investigation focuses in on something that would be the opposite, right? That it would basically be, you know, given county contracts to your buddies, to people who are contributors and whatever else, uh, the kind of thing that Hidalgo has been, you know, railing against. And, and some of the stuff that she ran on when she became the county judge. And so it's, it's I think it, for those reasons and a lot of others, uh, the stakes actually couldn't be higher. And look, again, it's a game of chicken with the prosecutor. Let me let me let me say it one other way. The prosecutor is the one, you know, when it comes to grand juries, let's say there was something to do with your campaign finances. If you're a candidate like Hidalgo and you just filed the wrong form on something, the D.A. could either go, you know, just a typo or they you know they can just file it who cares not a big deal or the da if they don't like you because you've been feuding with them could say i don't know we might have to uh impanel the grand jury here and probably need to take a look at this and i don't know how long it's going to take it could take a month it could take six months i mean you just you want to make sure that justice is done you don't want to get in a rush on this it is it can be very very treacherous to be to be dealing with that so we'll keep an eye on it what did tucker carlson say about dan crenshaw i saw you tweeted about this yeah, I, I I was sitting there just minding my own business on a Monday evening, and Tucker Carlson calls him Eye Patch McCain. Oh I'm man! Like, this, what? And of course, this is on his show on Fox News Channel. And the more I think about it, it takes a lot of gall for Eye Patch McCain to attack mom's jewelry about baby formula as quote pro Russia. So he said that, Jeremy, and immediate reaction. I mean, I I think that it's gross uh, to attack, and no matter what you think of Crenshaw's politics. Why don't you remind people how he got that eye patch? Yeah, in 2012, roadside bomb in Afghanistan uh, nearly killed him, uh, you know, causing permanent damage to his vision in both eyes. You know that you know risked him going blind. They were able to you know you know save the one eye, but he wears an eye patch over you know what is a glass eye now, mm-hmm. uh, and so like the guy gave like way more for this country probably physically than most people can ever imagine. And so anytime, like, you know, this is the same thing that Pete Davidson got into in Saturday Night Live when he made a joke about the eye patch. There's some things you just, it just, just move away from it. It says like criticize Dan Patrick for being a war hawk and going too aggressive and wanting to support Ukraine. That's fine. But just to throw in that extra little chip, it's like, I just don't understand why, uh, and and and, and just, it's important to note, like you know, after that, you know, Crenshaw ended up, you know, you know, talking to media and saying, mm-hmm. you know, he just saw the attacks as juvenile, but he stands by the original premise of what he was talking about, which is his support of helping Ukraine, because when we help Ukraine, we're helping diminish the Russian military without right. ever putting an American in harm's way, you know. So he said it's a no-brainer. To support them, he backed the forty million uh, billion dollar mm-hmm. you know aid package to Ukraine, and he's you know as he said he's standing by it and he's not wavering despite the criticism from yeah you know, Tucker Carlson. All right, anytime that the United States can help to beat back the evil empire without putting any of our, our troops uh, you know in harm's way, that's the thing that you would do. It's the thing that we've done. Over the years, I know that some folks have taken uh, issue with this, uh, but the stakes could not be higher. You think about the kind of year that we're having, Jeremy. 
and you know the the entertainment wing of the Republican Party and what they have to say aside with Tucker Carlson and you know talk show hosts like my friend Michael Berry in Houston they're they're doing a show they're doing a show and they're not really um, they're not really you know driven by any sort of specific conservative values when they say these things they're trying to get a rise out of people right they're trying it's it's for entertainment value and people need to remember that. Um, but with the with the with what's happening in Russia and Eastern Europe, with fears of a recession on the way, with the week that Wall Street just had, I mean, this is a tumultuous time, and who knows what we will be talking about by this time next week? Can you hear in my voice that that's enough show? Yeah, it is. <laughs> yes, right. And if you enjoyed it, you know you do. You should be a subscriber on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, however you enjoy your favorite podcast. It's all good. Give us the best rating that you can and subscribe, please, at quorumreport.com, houstonchronicle.com as well. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.